Very quickly I learned like whatever I wanted to do, I wanted to make sure the base layer was really secure. And the base layer being um, that I'm doing something that can improve the world or that can impact a large number of people. Um, I was afraid of doing something that at the end of the day, even if I was successful, didn't ultimately matter. Joe, thank you so much for coming today on Demo Day. We really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I wanted to start the podcast out. Um, I read a tweet on your Twitter account, and you said, uh, thrilled to be a part of Mars Bio VC Fund, excited to back the boldest bioscience entrepreneurs at the earliest stages. We'll talk a lot more about your bio company that you launched out of MIT, but I wanted to know, why are you so excited and committed to the biotech ecosystem as a venture capitalist? Yeah, so um, bio right now is having a moment, I think. And it's been a moment that's been building for a really long time. Um, but I think both in LA and beyond, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that see uh, bio as kind of the intellectual challenge of our time. Whether it's programming matter to do specific things, um, working with organisms to create new food types, uh, develop new crops, antibiotics, whatever the case may be. These are exceptionally complex problems, and it requires exceptionally smart people to solve them. And so um, basically it's, a, it's an uncapped upside potential for a lot of these companies and a lot of these industries, and it's just it's extremely interesting to be on the ground floor to see how they're being developed. So at the earliest stage of a biotech company, as you're looking at these uh, different startups to invest in, I know you've been a advisor and a mentor to many of them growing you know, through the, the ranks here. Uh, at someone that you're looking at, is it more about the product or the team for Mars Bio? Um, it's, it's certainly more about the team at the very earliest stages. So if a company is coming to us and they haven't raised funding and all they really have are some results in the lab or an MVP, um, it's always difficult to look at that and be like, yeah, that, that's going to be a billion-dollar company right there. Um, and so while I think, especially if we're dealing with a pure science company, um, early results in the lab are super important. Um, having a very in-depth understanding of the industry is very important. It, it ultimately comes back to team at the earliest stage. And I think there is a misconception uh, among startups when VCs say it's all about the team, I know when I was an entrepreneur, what I heard was, okay, um, it's all about the team. Like, I'm a pretty personable guy. Like, people like me. Um, I, you know, I can, I can work really hard. That's what, I, that's what I kind of understood team to mean. Um, when we say we invest at the earliest stage, primarily for the team, we mean founders who are uh, absolute experts in their industry and forces of nature. And so it's less about, yeah, they're a nice person and more like, their expertise and knowledge in this industry is unassailable, and they're going to work on this for the next decade of their lives and put everything they have into it. And so um, we certainly invest in teams at the earliest stages, um, but, but that incorporates a lot of categories. So for those listening, Joe is a venture partner over um, at Mars Bio, a new biotechnology VC fund here in Los Angeles. And uh, Joe, tell us a little bit more about yourself growing up. You know, were you from Los Angeles? How did you end up where we are today? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, so a pretty, pretty long journey from there. Yeah. Um, I went to undergrad at Duke University. So I was in North Carolina for a few years in my early 20s. Um, and then did kind of some consulting work for Accenture's digital strategy group for three years after that. Let's talk about Nashville growing up. You know, what kind of kid were you? What were your hobbies growing up? Were you more of an academic tech person or were you into sports? What, what was it like for you growing up in Nashville? Yeah, I was, uh, I loved running and I loved reading. So I was very, um, I was very reflective as like a young kid and I was also very quiet and I was also very scared. I felt a lot of times that I was, I was afraid of trying new things, trying new foods, um, really venturing out beyond my kind of immediate set of experiences. Um, and was that more? Was that more like the family that you grew up in, or was it just the environment of Nashville? I mean, sometimes I grew up in Los Angeles, so you're sort of like thrown out there. But I can imagine in Nashville, you don't have these big cities, or maybe I'm totally uh, missing it. What was it? What was it like? You know, or why do you think it was like that for you growing up? Um, 
You know, I don't know if it was, I, I don't want to like ascribe too much to Nashville um, and and downplay just kind of how I acted as a kid. Yeah, you know, I yeah. grew up as like a kid who was uh, kind of a little bit scared of the outside world and scared mm-hmm. of things I didn't really know. Um, you know, I don't think I had pasta until I was like 17 years old, you know? Like, wow, okay. Um, that, I think it was just like a... I didn't really have what I think is referred to now as like a growth mindset. You know, I was I was really interested in things, um, but you know, it was within like the protection of reading. Or I was a big runner, so I loved you know running for very long distances. Um, but uh, and that was I think kind of my first escape from just the hey, this is my neighborhood, this is where I live, this is what I like to eat. Yeah, running was my first opportunity to be like I'm just gonna kind of keep running and see where it takes me. Yeah. Um, and, and it sounds like it sounds like from that perspective, you are a very introverted person. But in talking to you for you know even twenty minutes, it seems as though you know you're this very extroverted. Was that a transition that you made at some point when you became a founder, or what was that? You know, going from the reader runner, everything's in my head, to having to lead a team or you know be a, a partner at a VC fund. When did you make that transition? Yeah, I, I think it probably happened at some point in college. Um, I think like as I started to get involved in different activities that I was interested in, um, as I started, again, like reading helps, right? Um, reading helps, seeing the world a little bit helps, just having a different viewpoint on certain things is, is useful. And I went to Duke and it's like a, a super diverse undergraduate population. So meeting people from, Cal- my roommate was someone from California. So that was the first time I met anyone from California. Um, was just like, I think that helped open my world a little bit. And then um, by the time I had left Duke, um, I had a a group of friends who were, I think, like-minded in their kind of um, excitement about trying things outside of what we were familiar with. Now, Duke is, of course, one of, you know, the top schools uh, East Coast, you know, but they're not necessarily known, at least from my understanding, as like a tech-focused school. Did you know in college that you wanted to somehow land in tech, or how did you transition? Because from my recollection, you were a poly, like a, was it political science, or what, what, what was your major in Duke? Yeah, it was, it was public policy. Public policy, that's right, yeah. public policy. So, so I always thought about it from like, okay, um, how can I live my life in a way that affects the greatest number of people? Which is, I, I don't think is like an uncommon framework, especially mm-hmm. going through college. Um, and uh, public policy was a, a way to make a seeming impact on hundreds of millions of people through policy decisions, by working with lawmakers. Um, it just it seemed like that was a way to really have a direct impact or an indirect impact on a lot of people. Um, of course, what I discovered after kind of going through this major, working in D.C. for a little bit, um, the reality of that is much different on the ground. Mm. Um, and... Uh, it, it is a, I, I was actually, I was on the Hill working with an environmental lobbyist group summer after my junior year. And it was the summer that comprehensive climate legislation went to the Senate um, and was supposed to pass. And at the last minute, they pulled it because they were trying to get health care through. And I mean, for me, you know, like I've been working there six weeks, you know, it was like, it was sad, but like, you know, it's time to move on. Um, there were people there who had been working on it for 20 years. It was their entire life's work. And they wow. had gotten so close and had everything lined up. And Due to just you know a scheduling red conflict. tape or something. Yeah, they they um, you know the uh, politicians had decided they didn't want to move forward with it or they wanted to take a little more time to reflect and, and that was it. That was the best chance that they had and you know it's ten years later and not nothing nearly as good of a chance has come up and so I started to think okay um, I, it's really hard to have a direct influence through public policy you know um, and that also I think a lot of it was also the the day to day work to move that stuff forward. I, I was never really in love with. What? How old were you around when you were going through, is this like 18, 19, 20? Yeah. Now, like not many people, or at least not many people that I know are really thinking about, you know, how do I change or have the biggest impact in the world? Although, of course, some do. What Was it a mentor? Was it your own personal thought process? Like what kind of made you want to have such a big impact? Yeah, there's a... Um... There's a framework now, I think it's a Bezos framework, that he calls the regret minimization framework. Okay. Um, and, I mean, I read about this framework two years ago, but and then as I read it, I was like, I've been using this virtually my entire life. Can you tell us what it was? Yeah, so, it works? so basically it's when you're faced with, like, a decision or set of decisions, uh, make the decision that you are least likely to regret down the road. And mm-hmm. basically that almost always, especially when you're young, it equates to taking that big risk or doing something where you don't know the outcome. But if you're 50 years old and looking back, you would say, oh, wow, I really wish I had, I had made that jump. 
I really wish I had chosen tech as opposed to consulting, um, or that I had chosen to start a company as opposed to, to work for a large company. Um, and so I, in a lot of ways, I did that throughout my late teens and early 20s was around, honestly, it was, it was, it was less about, um, uh, I mean, a big part was impact, but a lot of it was also like, how do I minimize regrets? Mm-hmm. How do I make sure that like, even if things don't work out, at the end of the day, the process was still, like I was still seeking to impact the greatest number of people or, or do the most good while I was here. What is the regret that you feared the most? Like what, you know, when you kind of thought about this deep down the road, like what were you most afraid of regretting? Um, a wasted life. Mm. I think a lot of it is existential, right? Like I think when you get to, I mean, and I think most people feel it, not when they turn 40 or 50 or whatever, but kind of at a, on an ongoing basis. And I think you can turn down that voice for a period of time, but other times it's louder. And I thought very quickly I learned, like, whatever I wanted to do, I wanted to make sure the base layer was really secure. And the base layer being um, that I'm doing something that can improve the world or that can impact a large number of people. Um, I was afraid of doing something that at the end of the day, even if I was successful, didn't ultimately matter. Um, and so that that's something I used... Which brought you to bio. Is, is that why, once you realized that public policy wasn't exactly what you thought it was, biotech became something where you could have a big impact? What was the transition like from, from yeah. policy to tech? Yeah, well, I think there's, there's kind of a middle layer there. So um, at MIT, uh, when I started at MIT, I helped run MIT Startup Accelerator, which was focused on mm. bioscience companies and, and deep tech companies. Um, so that was in you know 2015. Um, I did consulting for a few years in between at Accenture. At Accenture, and big, so, big, big company. Big companies, Fortune 50 companies, working with pharma companies, um, with consumer goods companies, financial services companies. A lot of it was digital and uh, big data strategy. Um, and maybe like a year out, I remember reading this post from Chris Dixon at Andreessen, and it was titled something like "Climbing the Right Hill." And basically, the idea that he explored was a lot of people live their lives kind of like seeking out these local maxima as opposed to like a global maxima. So local maxima is you join a consulting firm after college and you say, great, I'm an analyst here in two years, I'm going to be a consultant. In four years, I can be a manager. In 10 years, I can be a partner. Well, what then? Like, in, in a certain way, you've achieved that maxima. You're a partner at a fund, you're making good money, but what are you focusing on? Are you focusing on like optimization of insurance services? Like You've achieved a maxima, but is, is it ultimately fulfilling for your life? Mm. As opposed to a global maxima, which is like, it may be a higher hill and much harder to climb, but you're gonna enjoy the journey, and when you're at or close to the peak, it's gonna feel really rewarding on both an existential level as well as like an enjoyment level in day to day. And so, like, for whatever reason, that was an extremely influential post to me um, because I started thinking, okay, like, consulting is good for getting an understanding of the industry, but what hill do I want to climb for my career that I feel really excited about climbing, that I wake up every day and I'm, I'm really enthralled by? And I think tech broadly fit that. Um, and specifically, like, working with early-stage companies was something that felt like, okay, this is a hill that I could climb for the rest of my life. Mm. And so uh, when I started at MIT, I, I went there to get my MBA, and I was also working at the Media Lab while I was there. Um, and uh, the first couple months, I helped run MIT Startup Accelerator program called Delta V, uh, and really worked with a lot of these founders. It was the first time I was working with founders. Can you can you paint the picture for us a little bit? Like, what's it like to be on MIT's campus? What was the Media Lab like? I I think there's you know everyone goes to their respective colleges. What's it like to be on MIT's campus? Um, it is, I always think of MIT as like, they love building infrastructure. They love building like the groundwork for really, really big things. Um, like early work on the internet or like foundational work in biological sciences, robotics, robotics, um, cryptography, like every, it's so foundational that it's really cool. You can understand, you could get to know people who are such technical experts that they're laying the foundation for hundreds of companies to be built on top of. And that's the the vibe and the energy around campus is a lot of builders, a lot of uh, scientists. Is um, Was it at campus there working with those startups? Was there any, you know, part people in particular that you gravitated towards and, and you know started tinkering? Did you jump right into business or did you have a couple of early experiments that you ran while you were at school? 
Yeah, it's um, early on. There was a, there's some. I, I would call it like trial and error. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, joining with a founder who had like an interesting idea and like working with them, seeing if there was a culture fit, um, trying some ideas of my own. I was When I was working at the Media Lab, a lot of my focus was on uh, applications of uh, cryptocurrencies for working with the government of Mexico to understand remittance flows and if there were application layers there. So, you know, I had some ideas in that space and was moving the ball forward a little bit there, but nothing really caught my attention. I mm-hmm. think like... But I knew for sure, by the time I had, I had finished, wrapped up the MIT Accelerator program, I knew I was going to start a company. Um, I knew the likelihood that I actually got through two years at MIT was probably pretty low. Um, really? Did you know when you went into MIT was the plan always, like, I know I'm going to be there for, I'm going to learn, I'm going to build a team or find some people and get out? Or did it, like, was it something that just smacked you in the face and you're like, I need to start my thing? Um, when I was accepted into MIT, the plan was two years um, and then start a company. I really thought it was a springboard to start a company, meet some interesting people, um, do kind of a, I mean, really just uh, have an opportunity to, to build something. Um, once I was actually at MIT, I thought there was a decent chance that if the right opportunity came along, I would focus on that. Um, I really, like, the network was incredible. The resources were, were pretty unparalleled. I would have been totally happy to stay there for two years. Hmm. Multiply if we if we hadn't started multiply. I think like, I mean my I met my now wife there. Um, we met in the first two months of uh, of MIT, and so there's a lot of reasons for me to stay a second year. And I I 100% would have if not for kind of the unique opportunity that was multiply. So I'm I'm very excited to learn more about multiply because I think you know in doing research you sometimes learn about you know, different companies that our guests have been. I think Multiply is one of the more interesting ones. Can you tell uh, our listeners, you know, how did you come up with the idea of Multiply? What was the problem you were trying to solve with it? Yeah, definitely. Um, so the idea for Multiply came from two of my co-founders, uh, Fred Perietti and uh, Alice Malochi, um, who were uh, born in Italy, um, educated at MIT, Fred was a PhD in robotics. Alice was a PhD in pharmaceutical science. Um, and so they basically come up th- came up with this idea for 3D printing pills. The logic being, if you 3D print pills, you can control the release profile of ind- individual ingredients in those pills. And so Alice's background in pharmaceutical science was identifying uh, the right uh, material to use to actually print with. You can't use, you know, you can't use the stuff that's in 3D printers. Um, you can't print with plastic, it's gonna poison people. So you have to choose a very specific polymer that has printing profiles that avail itself both the safety as well as functionality. So that was a lot of her expertise. Fred's expertise was on the robotic side. So he had worked a lot with 3D printers, much more advanced machines. Um, a lot of what he focused on was uh, applications that involved multiple arms and multiple legs. So basically like superhuman robotic features. So, um, but specifically related to multiply, um, a lot of what he knew was some advanced manufacturing techniques and uh, an understanding of, okay, if we're gonna print with this stuff, how to achieve certain uptime, how to get the printing results we want, um, and beyond that, if we're building, if the dream for Multiply is to build the world's first personalized medication, it's going to require a lot of robotic steps, not just the printing, but also custom filling, like filling pills with precise amounts of powder with a variety of medications. Um, that's a really tough engineering challenge. And so they came together around that original idea and had written a paper on it in mid-2015. And then at the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, is when I met them. Uh, and they were like, we're really thinking about turning this into a company. Um, just the two of them, they didn't have a team at the time? Just the two of them. Um, and uh, I started, I was, I was actually introduced to them by my wife, who I had been dating for about a month at that point. She was like, there's a, there's a scientist that you should really get to know. He's working on a cool idea. And so she introduced us, um, and we just started to work together. And I think what was really apparent early on was, one, this is a technology with a potentially really, really big impact. Um, and two, on the, on the team side, I, I just never really worked with the team that executed like our team did. It was just, we barely knew each other, but there was never a misdeliverable. There was never anything but a comprehensive response. It was just like, we clicked really well from early on. And I was like, okay, team, idea, tech, this is enough to like really build momentum on. What were some of the takeaways that you took from like the best parts of that team that you look for now in teams that you invest in? Yeah, I think it's. Um, I think there's individual 
personality qualities, and then I think there's like team cohesion qualities. So the individual personalities uh, that I look for. So one is relentlessness. I think like when I think of Fred, I think of just a totally relentless person who will drive and drive and drive and never give up. Uh, and I think that's like really, really critical, especially especially in a hard tech space or in a space that requires years of scientific research. You have to be really thoughtful, but you have to just be relentless. Um, for Alice, she's just like an intellectual powerhouse. So just clearly someone at the top of her field who could go toe-to-toe with anyone about the pharmaceutical properties of what we're developing. So I think like those were two major ones. Um, in terms of team cohesion, it's hard to assess from the outside, but uh, being really honest, honesty is super important with an early team, especially with a deep tech team, and especially with a deep tech team uh, that has a business co-founder. So I think like one thing that I stress with early stage teams is like be like as explicitly honest with each other as you possibly can. Outside of the obvious around honesty, why you know it's you could have chosen so many words to use, but honesty is is such a key one. Let's uh, elaborate a little more. Why is trust, honesty, these things so important to a rock star team? Yeah, so I think like specifically for a deep tech team. So oftentimes you're dealing with PhDs or postdocs um, who've already spent years of research. Uh, and at the, end of, at the end of their PhD or as their postdoc is wrapping up, they're a pretty divergent career path, right? You can become a professor. Um, you can start a company and be an entrepreneur. You can work for a larger company. Um, and even if you start working on a company, it's no guarantee that the motivations are the same. And so while one person may say, I'm all in on this startup, uh, I want to exclusively do this for the next 10 years, some, another co-founder could say, I'm definitely interested in this, but I'd like to continue my postdoc as well. Mm. Uh, and I think like there's a lot of stuff that isn't said. Communication uh, can sometimes maybe not be the best for a deep tech. So yes. like they're... Uh, very curious, always wanting to learn. And uh, I would imagine, like you're saying, for a business co-founder, that's like, hey, we got to get numbers. Maybe a science thinker might not be exactly on that same page with them. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think the business co-founder element, and I think this is especially important for first-time entrepreneurs who are coming from the business or operations side, um, I think it's really important to be really honest and explicit as well from your side. Because I think there's a lot of temptations as a business co-founder early on. So things that are very common in startup world, like a year of equity vesting, right? Having a cliff. So if you leave before the first year, you don't get any equity. Um, A lot of technical co-founders don't know that. And so as a business co-founder, it is advantageous to yourself to not necessarily suggest that you all have a one-year cliff. Because as the non-science person, you are the, the, the least important person on the team in a lot of cases. Mm. And so it's advantageous to not bring up the fact that a cliff is common. Um, however, like it's just such a short-sighted move to basically get equity in a startup that you're not working on in three months um, and damages the relationship to, to like a very extreme degree. And there's like a lot of these many things, a lot of these small choices that you have to make in the early going. And to be fair, a lot of maybe a lot of business co-founders don't know that. But for the ones they do, I think you just have to, you have to always be on the side of your co-founders. You have to be looking out for their, their best interests, especially when they're trying to learn the landscape of startup and, and of business broadly. Now, when you were uh, at the company, so I understand one co-founder was more on the hardware and the robotic side. One co-founder is more on the intellect and sort of what the delivery mechanism of, of the product. What was your um, uh, position in the team? Were you were you this business co-founder that you're talking about? Yes, I was. Got so, it. So um, I was I was CEO of the company. So a lot of ways, my role was go um, identify what the biggest problem area is. Um, come up with different ways to solve it, and then solve it, basically. And so early on, a lot of the work was on the regulatory front. So understanding, for a product like ours, which was a personalized medication, uh, a single pill that contained multiple medications of varying quantity, um, how do we get a product like that approved? Uh, And by talking to regulatory consultants at $600 an hour, it's not easy to get an answer. And so a lot of my work was understanding the regulatory process. We ended up uh, going through a process called the 505B2, which is a, kind of an offshoot of the generic drug approval process. Understanding that landscape is really difficult. Um, you're probably having to ramp up a lot of learn. Like you probably learned a lot about bring your public policy days back in. You, yeah. you had to learn a lot about, uh, I would imagine, red tape and working through different, you know, approvals. And what, was that a element of the early days of the business? Like, what were some of the pain points or struggles that maybe 
people didn't know when you're staying up at 2 a.m. making it happen, what were some of the, the, the hardships that you had to go through in the early days of a biotech company? Yeah, so we were a unique company in that, um, so we were a robotics pharmaceutical company. So when you think about what the core of your company is, it's, it's important to build a company around what the core of the company is. Like, if you don't have that core, you are not differentiating, you will not succeed. The core of our company was robotics manufacturing. And so what that meant is we had to build a manufacturing plant. We had to build a facility. Um, if, if we didn't build it, like, what were we doing? We are just building robots with the hope that someone would buy the robots or buy, like, no one's gonna buy the end product if you don't have a facility. And so, uh, actually, this is the first time I met my partner, Rob Reinhardt, um, was the summer that my company went through Y Combinator. And I remember calling him, and I was like, so our plan is to build a manufacturing facility. And his advice was, you should do everything you can to avoid building a manufacturing facility <laughs> unless it's the key to your company. Uh. And I was like, it's the key to our company. And he was like, well, I guess you're screwed then. Like, <laughs> you need to build, you need to build a facility. And so that was the first, the first year actually was spent, we moved into a warehouse and then renovated it. Um, uh, we had to reconstruct a pharmaceutical grade production facility, complete with clean rooms. Uh, we spent probably six months building up uh, quality procedures that we had to follow, washing our hands in a certain way, putting on gloves. We literally washed the facility ourselves for six months. So washing the walls, washing the floors, hours a week doing this. So a, like an unusually high amount of manual labor. Yeah. Early on. Um, and then we, uh, after this process, we got the facility approved by uh, um, the California FDA. They kind of greenlit it as a production facility. So we met all GMP guidelines. Um, so that was like a, uh, that was not what I was expecting. The type of problems I was expecting to necessarily solve a COO, but it was the most pressing problem for us that wasn't technical related, and so I kind of had to dive in. Wow, I mean, it, it just sounds like the ultimate mountain that you have created, or at least at the time had created, you know, to deliver personalized medical care to the masses when you don't have the warehouse, you don't have anything really, you know, you've really uh, set out uh, that path. As you began to grow, what what was it like? Like, uh, how did the company progress? Did you begin building a team? Did you raise funding? What was the early you know process once you started to get some traction or some movement? Yeah. So this is also the interesting thing about deep tech companies is um, traction looks different. Yeah. You know, traction is not um, unless you're a lucky deep tech company. Traction is not revenue. Uh, traction is not necessarily customers. Traction is progress against technical regulatory milestones and some proof points around consumer acceptance, but like does of, the FDA approve or like just things of that, there are some signals, but it's not in the traditional way of like how many units did we sell right. or leads did we generate? Right. And so I think like that is a, it, it's really, it's kind of an interesting process. So when we went through Y Combinator, um, we went through in summer 16, we raised uh, a few million dollars after that, which gave us enough opportunity to kind of to realize the dream, to build out the facility space, to really take a go at building the, the, fullest, uh, the fullest version of what our product could be. So let's, uh, let's talk Y Combinator for, for a little bit because I think, you know, number one, you're the first guest on the show, to my knowledge, that's gone through the program. Number two, you know, the show is called Demo Day. We have a lot of accelerator-minded, you know, VCs and people that have been through different programs Ycom is like the top of the top. Before we even started the conversation, you were saying like they, you know, you don't see them slowing down anytime soon. And you actually referred to it as like the ironclad brand. Talk to us a little bit about what the experience was like, not only getting into Ycom, like how do you literally get in? What was that like for you? But then what is it like once you're in the program? Was it another version of MIT to you? Yeah, um, it's, I think what's best about Y Combinator is they're just very focused. They know what they do better than anyone, which is they bring in top startups, um, they help them raise money, and they help them build a business. And I think the experience of being in it is you only meet with the partners once every other week. Um, so my the partners that I had were. Um, do you work out of their out of their space? Don't work out of the space. It's purely you see them once every two weeks. And so my partners were Adora Chung of. Homejoy, uh, Kosser Yunus, who now has a uh, autonomous driving startup, and Justin Kahn um, of Atrium, and um, and obviously Justin TV back in the day. Yeah, I was uh, he, big time, big fan of Justin, and and then it was crazy because he was 
like Twitch, right? And didn't he? Didn't Justin he, TV became Twitch. Became Twitch, and then he uh, started a lawyer, like a a, a law outright axiom has to do with lawyers. And I was like, wow, that's a big jump. But he was yeah, such true. a personality on Snapchat. I. Uh, I, I don't think he made the big move to Instagram, so I, I sort of yeah. lost him. Yeah, yeah he... Uh, Justin, if you're hearing this, man, get back on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, Justin used to uh, snap snap us in the uh, in the office hour sessions. So he would film us in real time. I've probably seen do, you like in yes. old school Snapchat. As we were doing report outs, he would like turn the camera on himself and be like, I don't know what they're talking about, and then like turn it back on the phone, which was like pretty entertaining and like diffused a lot of situations, honestly. How, I want to talk more about like the process of getting into YCOM, but how was it different than the early days? Like, was was there a clear difference in the mentality of your internal co-founding team once you left sort of the warehouse, you know, washing it yourself? Now you're in, you're in the, sh- you're in the mix with all of these people. Was there a shift in your mentality or was it still like, you know, guns blazing? Uh, what was it like to kind of move away from that now going into Y Combinator? Well, it actually, the timeline is reversed. So we actually got into Y Combinator um, in the spring, or I guess it was summer of 2016. And it was only after going through did we, it, when we moved out to San Francisco, we built the facility at that point in mm-hmm. San Francisco. Got it. Um, so Y Combinator was a really good forcing function for us. One, we were, I think, one of the earliest teams. We hadn't even incorporated yet when we got accepted into Y Combinator. We were a really young team. We had just learned. We were just learning how to work together, and so it was definitely like a formative experience. Um, I think the beauty of Y Combinator is just like it is. They themselves don't really put any pressure on you. Like they've already given you the check. It's not like you're working for the check that they're going to write you. Um, but you really you have these office hours every two weeks where you come in and they say what what was your metric last week, and you could say my metric was to sell ten thousand dollars worth of X. And they say, okay, did you achieve that? And there's two possible responses. Response one is you say, uh, no, I didn't hit that metric. Uh, I only sold 9,500. And they say, okay, well, you need to grow by 10% over the next two weeks, um, or you're not going to be able to raise funding and you'll never build a successful company. (laughs) Option path two is you say, yes, I hit the metric. I sold 10,000 units of X. Um, I achieved my goals. And they say, great. Congratulations. Um, your goal is to increase sales by 10% in the next two weeks. If you don't do that, you're not going to be showing momentum. Investors aren't going to fund you, and you'll never build a successful <laughs> company. So um, there, there, maybe there are some slight variations on those responses, but in general— It's like, how you feel. Like, yeah, they, I mean, they kind of—you kind of create your own reality in a lot of ways. They just—like, if you don't hit the milestones, like, they still go home. Like, you don't fight with them. They don't fire you. Um, so it's all it's all self-imposed. You kind of put on your own, like, how high do we want to aim in this program? Mm-hmm. How much do we want to kill ourselves to get these milestones? Like, they're not holding a gun to your head. It's not, it's all kind of self-imposed. They give very direct feedback. And I think their mentality is we want to simulate what conversations with investors will be like when you go to fundraise in August or in March if you're in the, the, the winter batch. Um, and yeah, it's just like, I think it's a really good proxy for when you have those conversations with investors, they ask the same questions. They have the same concerns. Now, I've been to, you know, I'm a, a mentor at the 500 Startups Facebook program. I, I help them there. Uh, you've been to the Techstars program, and you see a lot of intermingling amongst the teams in the cohort. A lot of, you know, they go out together, they're friends. It's kind of like for the time that you're in that process, you guys are like one you know, of course you're a team, but you're like part of a bigger team, right? You're you're part of Y Combinator. Was that the feeling you had there or was it very much like we're a part of a great organization, you know, almost like going to college, like I'm a part of a great brand, but I'm not really mingling with the other teams. What What's the interculture like at Y Combinator? I think for us, it was closer to the latter. It was more, we had joined this great organization. We had, um, we definitely had a lot. Of, it was like, we have connections to all these great startups from Airbnb to Stripe to Dropbox, all these incredible like generational companies which are extremely successful. We have access to those founders. We have access to people in our batch who are doing amazing things. But it wasn't like, it never, it never felt like college or anything. And maybe that was also a function of our age. I mean, we were in our mid to late 20s. Yeah. We, weren't, you know, we weren't college students. You were ready to climb the hill. Yeah, but I, I think everyone is kind of ready. Everyone wants to grind. Mm-hmm. Like everyone is ready, is trying to put in the work. It's, it's so hard to get into Y Combinator that you want to make the most of your chance. You really want to like 
try to blow it out as much as you can. And so I have some really deep connections from Y Combinator, but most of them I became close after Y Combinator because Y Combinator is just like seven days a week. How, how basically like how focused can you be for a period of time? Mm-hmm. Um, and after, you know, after three months, you're totally exhausted and it's really difficult to kind of continue that. And then you start branching out. But um, it, it was much less about, uh, we, we, you know, on occasion we go out to drinks or dinner, but it, uh, it definitely had the impact of you're focused on your startup. You're singularly focused on helping that startup succeed. Now, what what ended up happening? You know, what's the storyline? Because of course, right now we're at Mars Bio. You're now impacting you know the world at even a, a different sort of scale than founding. What was the transition for you? Did you know like deep down inside that like you wanted to learn and try new things, or um, you know what was sort of the transition once you kind of uh, got going at with the company there? Yeah. Um, so I think in. 2018, um, my wife was working at Facebook. She was uh, leading their efforts on fighting polarization on the platform. Um, And by kind of late summer, early fall, she knew she wanted to start her own company. Um, And we had been talking about moving to LA. I mean, that was kind of always the plan. Her family, she's from LA originally. Virtually all her family is in LA. Um, Most of her friends are in LA from college and, and beyond. So we, we knew we wanted to be in L.A. Um, eventually. And I think it, it kind of got to a point where um, we just looked around San Francisco and we were like, we're, we're just not, we don't love this city. We're not happy here. And I think it, it was less about, it was certainly not about our relationship because we have an amazing relationship and we were happy in like the day-to-day. But as we look forward, it was increasingly difficult to imagine what a life there looked like. We, we were like, we did this exercise. We were like, okay, think 10 years in the future. What's the best case scenario? And increasingly, the best case scenario seemed to be, okay, if everything goes perfectly on the professional front, then we buy a one-bedroom, $2 million home in Palo Alto. And like neither of us was remotely interested in that. It was just like the dynamics of the city and where things were trending. Um, it just wasn't inspiring to us. And we we were like, this, this, this construct is not making us happy. And so um, we thought LA, LA may do that. And so my, my personal journey, I mean, the, a lot of the reason for the move was, was personal, yeah. um, just to be closer to, uh, to Lisa's family and um, to give her an opportunity to start a company. And then for me, I think like, it was a little bit of a jump. I knew I had heard good things about, uh, about bioscience in LA, but they were, you know, kind of small and it was difficult to understand how big of an opportunity set it was. Um, I knew Rob from uh, kind of the early days of Multiply and he had been helpful then and I knew he was down here. Um, but I mean, when I moved, I, I, I was very much of the opinion, like I wanna spend a couple months kind of exploring the city and understanding like what the next move is. Um, and so I moved here and I knew, I think I knew three people. <laughs> One is someone who I went to college with, and the two others were y, people from Y Combinator that I had met in my batch, but wasn't close to. So those three people I knew, uh, and two of them were like barely acquaintances. And so, yeah, the first like two months, I basically like had to bootstrap a network. So it was just, I'd go to coffee with a few people, I'd talk to them about interesting ideas, uh, what they were working on, and then I'd say, hey, can you introduce me to a few more people? What you you kind of alluded to it just a second ago. I think a lot of listeners here are you know they started in New York. Now they're transplanting to LA or to San Francisco. For someone that's sort of just like they're just coming to a new city, you know maybe they're even in a new position they've never done. What advice do you have for them that you learned from your early days of as you called it bootstrapping your network? Uh, anything you did in particular or or sort of strategies that you did that maybe other people would find valuable that are trying to build their own networks. Yeah, so if you're really coming to a city where you don't know anyone, um, you don't really have much to lose. And you're trying to build a, a personal or professional network. Mindset first, you're saying. Like, like don't, you have nothing to, like, like that. You don't. No one knows who you are. are. Like, there's, you don't, if you really don't have any connections, which I honestly didn't, outside of a few friends of Lisa's, I really didn't. Like, you don't have much to lose by asking for a coffee. Um, I, I, I did discover that having something in common with the person is the best way to you know, have them grab a coffee. I mean, Y Combinator is absolutely the best. I think, like, if you look at my hit rate for people I cold emailed from either Y Combinator or MIT or my undergrad at Duke or who I was professionally connected to, Y Combinator had, like, a 95% hit rate. 
So any person I cold emailed from Y Combinator at the very least would respond. And in the vast majority of situations, would be like, absolutely down for a coffee. Welcome to LA. Step one, have the right mindset. Step two, think about like commonalities that you could find, like where you went to college or groups you're a part of or things where that intro message is a little bit tighter than just a complete cold message. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, how do you... Uh, uh, set that meeting up, right? So, okay, you're, you've just moved to LA, you're taking Joe's advice, you've sort of thought about, you know, your college, you've thought about all your different groups of peers. Now you reach out to them. What's the first coffee like? Are you asking for something? What, what would you do in the early days when, again, you're just moving here, you have really no, no network at all? Yeah, I think it depends on what you're looking for. If you're just looking to network, I think that's one thing. And then you don't really need an ask, except maybe introduce me to a couple people. If you're looking for a job, that's a different thing. Like, okay. um, depending on the person you're meeting with, if you're if it's someone if they're working at a company that you want to work at, that's obviously a different scenario where you're trying to you know potentially get an angle to a job, interviewer. soft interview, something like that. Um, but in general, I think it's just like you you want to have what your goals are in mind when you're having this conversation. Um, I think like. I think a lot of the problems people have is they say, okay, I'm moving to a new city. I don't know anyone. How do I even, I, like, where do I even get the list of people to get started? Um, and honestly, the, the first thing I did was I looked through LinkedIn and I looked everyone who was in the LA area. And as everyone knows, like, probably only two-thirds of LinkedIn people you've maybe met or know at all. And so even, uh, it was really casting a wide net to be comfortable cold emailing a lot of these people who are in LA and saying, hey, like, you don't really know me, we've met once before, would you be up for a coffee? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, there a, a tactical piece of advice, I do this with most of my team members, because I, I think that especially those that went to college six years ago, eight, you, you kind of forget, like, oh, I've got one of my best friends from college, I completely forgot they moved into this company. Or like people change jobs all the time and you can actually go into your LinkedIn and you can download all of your contacts that you have, all your connections. And what I have my team do is download their personal connections and then categorize their connections to say, oh, went to college with this person because you just never know. Um, and so for anyone that is you know, in a completely brand new network, going into your LinkedIn, downloading your list of contacts, and then prioritizing them is definitely a tactic that you, know, you can use. Um, at what point, what, what was the origin story around meeting the Mars Bio team? You know, how, did, how did that come to be? What was those early conversations like? Yeah, so I, I'd say like the third piece of advice on the networking, which fits into the Mars Bio piece, is um, look, look to add value however you can. So bring your expertise to bear whenever there's an opportunity. Don't expect anything for it. Just really put yourself out there, and if there's an opportunity to help a team or help an individual, like, do it. If you have capacity to do it, um, go for it. I think, like, um, I got introduced to the Mars Bio team because I was helping uh, mentor startups out of USC's engineering school. And so I had helped a couple of them get into YC. Um, I was working with a couple others to help them develop their business model. And the woman who runs that program was like, you should really meet... um, who uh, a guy who's Rob's partner, Ari Lippman, uh, and I didn't know that him and Rob were working together. I was like, that sounds great. And she was like, they're running a bioscience fund. You should really connect with them. So I got introduced to them. I came by, and lo and behold, Rob was his partner, and then there was a third partner, Lou Ellen. Um, and so I met them, and um, they they used to have these Thursday lunches where it was kind of an open lunch. Anyone could come to it, talk to the companies, um, and I started coming by these lunches. I started mentoring some of these companies. I started helping. For free, no. For free. Yeah, I just like, like, they were working on super interesting stuff. I really liked the Mars Bio guys. The more I learned, um, they had just started the fund a couple months before, uh, had just kind of come to fruition. They, I think they were just about to make their first couple investments. And so I just started working with the companies. And I, I started working with the guys. And about two months later, um, they asked if I wanted to join. And so, uh, again, like, I, I always considered myself an entrepreneur. I thought after starting Multiply, um, I thought I would, that was going to be my life, that I would just continue starting companies. I'd, I never really thought about being an investor at all. Um, it just seemed too far from the action. Mm. Um, but I think what happened was I, a couple of things. One, I really enjoyed working with the team. I enjoyed working with Rob and Ari and Llewellyn. I think they were just like... 
They were extremely intelligent, working in really different areas, and our team dynamic was really solid. So again, kind of going back to the multiply days, like the team dynamic was super important. Mm-hmm. And the second thing was the companies we were we were working with were just really exceptional companies doing very cool things. Uh, and the third was a macro piece, which is I started to understand that Los Angeles was really having a moment in biosciences. Um, there has been, over the last 10 years, there's been a huge infrastructure build, specifically around lab spaces, but also around financing for these sorts of startups, um, around mentorship, because uh, the talent's always been in LA, through Caltech, USC, UCLA, UCLA. UC Irvine, Chapman. Like, there's so many extremely talented scientists in this area. The issue was a lot of them would leave. If they wanted to start a company, they would go to Boston or they'd go to San Francisco to get funding, and then they started. Um, or there wasn't lab space. And so if there's no lab space, you got to go where there's lab space. Where's their lab space? Boston and San Francisco. Um, but what the flows that they had started to observe was that more and more people were staying in Los Angeles. There was more and more capital available. Um, the, our fund really positions ourselves as kind of the first money to these startups and a way to de-risk these startups and give the founders, especially first-time founders, a map of, of what's ahead. Um, and so just the, like the opportunity in L.A. really seemed like it was big. At this point, this, this last year, actually, Los Angeles exceeded San Francisco uh, for the most number of biotech jobs uh, in the region. And, so, and that's, that's nationally. So it, the talent finally started to stay, stay in L.A. And what we've seen over the last few months is actually the migration has started to increase. So people from Boston or people from Durham or people from San Francisco increasingly want to move to L.A. to start a company. Um, And especially for the areas we focus on, it's because I think it's a few things. One is just there's a lot more space in L.A., frankly. And if if you need to build a facility or your your startup has some sort of uh, space necessity – it's, it's really difficult to make that work at a reasonable price point in San Francisco or, or even Boston. Um, and the second is that, like, people want to be happy. And I think they view L.A. as a city where you can be happy. Um, I, I've, I've, had con- I've had dozens of conversations with people who live in San Francisco who are very interested in moving to L.A. And the primary thing holding them back is they just don't, they don't know anyone there and they don't know what the opportunity to look like there. And I think that's a great way to wrap up sort of your three bullet points, you know, of, of advice for building a network. Um, you know, I was talking to a team member yesterday. There's this kind of a, it's to me at least a weird stigma around doing free work. And and as you were saying, I was thinking that, you know, I don't want to use the word loser and winner, but I'm going to in this, like, I think that when people think like, I don't want to give my time away for free, or I don't want to do free work. I'm not the type of person that does free. Like to me, that's like a loser mentality that when you have no network at all, it removes all barrier to meeting and working for the exact people you want. You know, if you want to go and be working at a fund, go and do free work for that fund and show them that you can bring value without any ask. If you want to become a videographer, go make videos for people. And, you know, I think that just, uh, you know, you're only hurting yourself if you're not willing to put that sort of value in because that's the that's the way you do it and then weirdly serendipitously you somehow land that job that you've always wanted to get so i think that's amazing advice when you are working you know amongst the team we were talking today uh, how you know really it's like all partners of the team are really in a full effort to meet new founders bring on new founders uh, you know find the right sorts of companies what is the right sort of startup for Mars Bio? You know, is there a general kind of type of company you look for? What's the general vertical? Yeah, so Mars Bio is a pre-seed and seed stage fund focused on uh, broadly bioscience companies, but specifically synthetic biology um, and deep tech. And so we, we break that down into the three different verticals that we focus on. The first is what we call industrial synthetic biology. So synthetic biology is the basically the discipline of designing new organisms that to have enhanced properties. Um, industrial biotech is often building a lot of the tools necessary. Um, it's almost like the building blocks to bring a lot of these products to market. So if you think about more efficient facilities, um, if you think about uh, bioreactors uh, to grow some of these, uh, these new types of plants or protein sources, that all fits into kind of industrial biotech. 
Um, the second category is what I think of as almost like the application layer on top of the infrastructure layer of industrial SynBio, which is what we broadly call like new, uh, new food in ag. So new food in ag is, are things like direct and consumer brands that leverage a new ingredient. Like Impossible Burgers or other plant-based foods that are coming out right now. Right. Exactly. Um, or, um, uh, I mean, Soylent in the early days was, I mean, that is a new food company, and it relies on a lot of the building blocks of, uh, of coming, I mean, it is not exactly the same in the case of, like, uh, it does less on the industrial symbio space, but it's still kind of a new food uh, and beverage product. Um, and then on the ag side, uh, we, we see, like, a huge opportunity set around uh uh, crop utilization um, around um, yield for individual for individual crops and for things like biopesticides. So like that still seems like, especially with the impact of climate change leading to more unpredictable growing seasons, we think that is going to be just an explosive field for a lot of these companies that rely on uh, synthetic biology. Um, and, and then the third category is what we call almost like classic biotech. So that's med devices, therapeutics. Got it. Now. Now, I would imagine, you know, kind of what you were talking about before, in most biotech uh, companies, there isn't a lot of traction that you're showing. It's not, at least in a traditional tech, you know, month over month growth in those in those ways. So um, at the earliest, earliest stages, I would imagine like you even have to use more of your gut or more of your intuition. So what sort of qualities do you look for in the founders that you now invest in? Yeah. So, I mean, the easiest founders to invest in are the ones that we've known for a while. So if, there were, if you're working on a really hard problem that's probably going to take years, the, the, the easiest way to get funding is if we've worked with you before and we know your skill set and we know you're going to do everything to pull this off. Um, if uh, in the absence of that, which is a pretty small pool of people, um, it, it pays to really have a clear idea of where you're going as well as some early results from the lab. If you're a pure bio company, at, at some point, you've done some in vitro studies. You've done initial experiments that you can show us the data. And we are we're science first firm, so show us the data. <laughs> ours is we start the conversation by saying, let's understand how the science works. Uh, if we can't understand how it works, or it seems contradictory, that's an easy pass. Um, if it seems sound and there's a good path to market, then we can kind of have other uh, conversations around: is the market big enough? Uh, is the team the right one to tackle it? Um, but the, the the easiest way to get the foot in the door is is bring data, bring early results on what you're building and why it's a, a revolutionary breakthrough. What's your point of view on the pitch? And when you know companies sit down with you, um, I've heard often, right? It's an art and a science to be able to really um, you know convey a good pitch. Is there anything that you found that stands out that you look for in a you know in a real solid conversation, or do you think the days of quote unquote pitching are over? Um, no, I mean I think like as CEO you will need to pitch your company the entire time you are CEO forever, forever. So like you better be very good at it. Doesn't mean you have to be perfect in the early stages. I think what we look for in the pitch is subject matter expertise. So the person, even if they don't fully know the answer, so a lot of these scientists aren't going to be able to tell you the market dynamics of the particular drug that they're developing, for instance. Like, that, that's tough. Like, however, having an insatiable interest in that area, and if you maybe don't know everything about the market, but you know all the ins and outs of the science, all the work that's being done, all the publications in the field, like, that stuff really comes through in the pitch. If, you know, I mean, on our team we have two molecular biologists, um, who've started companies. Rob is an electrical engineer by training. I know the operations side. So if the four of us together can't poke holes in what you're saying because you have such a sound, scientific, and operational idea, that's just such a, a perfect way to make a great impression. You've thought through all the loopholes. You've thought through like all the ways this could fail, and you're like maniacal about closing the loopholes and understanding like where value is. You guys mentioned that you're typically either first money in or one of the first monies in. Is there an average check size that's the right fit? Or if I was a founder in this space, what, what should I expect coming to a company or a fund like Mars, Mars Bio? Yeah, so we do checks anywhere from 100K up to about five or 600K. Okay. So for a pre-seed round, I mean, often we're comfortable either taking the whole round or leading the round. Um, for the seed stage, seed rounds have gotten a little bigger. Yep. Um, so if you're raising a $2 million round, at that point we probably co-lead the round. In some cases we may 
lead that round as well. But we really like to be in the leading position. We don't we don't want to have like a passive stake in the company where we're, we're not available to help founders, where we're just kind of just money in. We, we, we look for areas where you can add a lot of impact immediately. And, and for founders that are listening right now in the biotech space, what sort of value um, should they expect? You know, you had mentioned a little bit about yourself and your team. What's it like to be a founder that is, you know, getting an investment from Mars Bio? Um, I guess even more specifically, some VC funds have a very uh, hands-on approach. They're very involved and some are very hands-off. What's the vibe like working at a, at a Mars Bio um, you know, operation? I think it depends on the team that we're investing in. Mm-hmm. So um, if it's an experienced team, we are very comfortable saying, you call us, we won't call you. Right? If they know what they're doing, if they're executing, let us know where we can add value. Um, when, we, when there is an opportunity, we'll plug in and we'll fight for you as hard as you need to. But we don't need to set up weekly chats to understand how your company is progressing. That just wastes your time. Yeah. Um, if it's a first-time team, uh, we, we still take an approach where we say, call us if you have issues, but we're not going to pester you. However, we do provide a perspective on what some other teams have done. So other teams have set up monthly calls with us. Other teams have set up like uh, quarter, quarterly reports that they send out to their investors. Other teams do engage us proactively when they're a few months out from some fundraising. Other teams come to us when they have a scientific problem or an operational problem. So like outlining what the relationship could be is really important for first-time founders because they don't really know uh, what what is typical. They don't know how hands-off you typically are. They don't know if they're overstepping bounds by asking you for something. So basically our role is just to break down any nervousness about the relationship mm-hmm. and just be open with, we're, we've already put money in you. Like We're here just to help you. Yeah. Now... Whether you're able to mention names or just able to talk about the problems, are there any portfolio companies that you are just like super amped on? Or, uh, you know, what's really cool about talking to VCs like yourself and Epang from Embark is when you're focused on frontier technology and deep technology, you really get, especially at the early, early stage funding rounds, to see really the future of what's going to happen in biotech or fintech or really, you know, all of these areas. Um, is there any kind of uh, portfolio or, or vertical or problem that a team of yours is solving that you just are super excited and you go home and tell the wife and family about? Yeah, so one, uh, that's a really good way to position it because one that I just keep talking about is a company, um, I, I, I won't mention them by name, but they are, um, they're working on a soil fertility product for farmers. So basically, an issue that farmers have is they don't have like an acre by acre view on the fertility of their soil. So how conducive it is to growing crops. And so often what they do is they fertilize an entire area or many, many acres, um, thus kind of over fertilizing, which is a huge cost drain. And when they employ other practices like cover cropping, um, they don't have a great idea of how it's performing. And then if you're thinking about, okay, how do we use analytics to understand how effective our yield is this year and if, and how and the linkages between the fertility of the soil now, how will that impact future growing seasons? Um, so what Better Earth is doing is really adding um, uh, uh, more detailed analytics around that acre-by-acre acre analysis. So looking at the soil samples, um, understanding what the particular uh, fertility makeup is, uh, and then recommending solutions to these farmers. And so I think like, what this team has highlighted is, um, which they're called Better Earth. Um, I'll go ahead and mention it. They're, they're a cool team. We're excited plug, about Plug for Better Earth. Plug for Better Earth. Um, they, uh, they've, I, I've been talking to them a lot over the last couple of months, and it's just really opened my eyes to the broader ag implications and what's out there. And I talked a little bit about climate change before. Um, I was talking to uh, this the CEO of the American Soybean Association, and he was telling me that earlier this year, they forecast that soybeans were going to come in 60% under the expected yields, which is like really significant, right? That is industry shifting shortages of soybeans. And when you think about their use, not only in foods that we eat directly, but indirectly through feeding other animals in the US, China, a lot of other places, that's a major supply shock. Um, and a lot of it was due to changes in, uh, in climate a lot of unpredictable weather. So there's a, a huge influx of um, rain earlier this year, which made, which delayed the growing season. And for a while, they thought they were going to be um, massively underwater 
um, with, with soybeans. And the farmers were able to turn this around, and at the end of the day, I think it's just slightly below what the seasonal average is for soybeans. However, like I looked at that problem and said, wow, that is like risk. Farmers are taking on a huge amount of risk and they're dealing with so many unknown factors. There have to be better ways of dealing with this going forward. And I think that's going to lead to an explosion of really interesting companies. Now, I would imagine that, you know, going from your own entrepreneurial journey, right, building this big mountain for yourself to really focus on med tech, now at a seat where you can have an impact on so many of these different industries, do you feel like VC and venture is the next mountain for you? Or is there something about that starting your own company, being that founder in the number one seat that's still irking you or still kind of pulling at you? I mean, I still, maybe it's a misnomer at this point, but I do still think of myself um, as an entrepreneur in some ways. Um, I think the biggest thing to get used to is the the mental model changes as you switch from an entrepreneur in, into a VC, and the the cycles are just way different. Mm-hmm. So as an entrepreneur, you are like, the company doesn't move without you. If you don't put your all into the, into the company, moving it forward just incrementally, it's going to atrophy and it's going to die. Um, and so in my the first like month or two that I was doing venture, I was like, I operated a similar mentality. I was, okay, I want to see as many companies as possible, and then I want to push all of them to a decision, yes or no, in the next like few weeks, right? Just moving as moving as quickly as possible. Um, and I very quickly learned that wasn't the right mentality to, to have. Like, there's certainly some cases where you need to move fast to understand the industry, to, to, to move things forward and get a decision for an entrepreneur. But sometimes you're meeting with a team that you think has a high potential, but the data isn't there yet. Or they still need to figure out the dynamics of their industry before you're comfortable making an investment. And I think, like, those, and so sometimes it makes sense to have four or five conversations before deciding on anything. Mm, be more, be more patient. You're learning to be more patient when you're so used to the Y Combinator guy saying, if you don't grow every week 10%, then 100%. you're going to fail or something like that. Yes, absolutely. Do you, when thinking about your models, it sounds like having models, having mental models in general has been something that's sort of stuck with you at different parts of life. Do you have a routine that, that you know, whether it's a daily routine for yourself or maybe you've gone in and out, um, uh, could even shift towards advice for others, for those that seek, you know, what does Joe do? What's the routine that he does? Do you have a routine or is it different for you every single day or week? Um, It does differ a lot. I think what is really cool about the space we operate in is there's no shortage of difficult to parse technical problems to dig through. And what that means is like, it's really grounding to be able to either start a day or close a day by focusing on a new interesting company who has science that you don't totally understand and being able to dig into the research behind it, understand uh, research that's been published before, understand the direction they have, really um, really getting into the weeds of why this could be like a, a generationally important company. So that is the, um, I would say that's the anchor in like my day-to-day life is meeting with these companies, understanding the business model, and it's very grounding as well. I think the, we're a new firm, and so I think a good amount of the time is also understanding, okay, how can we add value in unique ways, um, and how can we potentially do things that haven't really been done before? So I think a lot of it is being opportunistic. It's about, a lot of it is building relationships with both local universities as well as um, universities outside of California, understanding what their professors are working on, what their grad students are working on, um, and building those relationships up. So it's it's amazing to me the degree of relationship building. Um, it's just so vital to, to what our industry is. What are some of the challenges that a VC and a fund one goes through that maybe, you know, that maybe VCs that are a little deeper in their uh, process uh, don't have to deal with as much? Um, I think like other VCs, so prior to joining VC, I heard a lot um, as a first time VC, it's difficult to get into deals, it's difficult to win deals. Um, That really hasn't been the case for us. We've been fortunate where every company that we've wanted to invest in so far, so our first nine companies we've been able to invest in, we've led eight of those nine deals. Um, I'm sure as we continue to grow, that'll be a pain point. But I think for us, we're, we're starting at such an early stage and such a nascent industry uh, that there's been less uh, fighting with other VCs to get into a round. So that, that, that at least has been, uh, that's been okay on that front. Interesting. For those listening, are there any books or um, uh, 
books, videos, you know, pieces of content that have impacted your life. I remember you said, you know, the the one from Andreessen Horowitz around the hill. Any other books that really stand out to you as as you know, you either come back to them over and over or just had a big impact in your life? Um yeah, I think there's like hmm, as I think back, I mean there's there's business related books. So I just read the uh, the Bob Iger uh, autobiography. Um, which I thought was like really fantastic, um, and I, I definitely—I mean, it's like it's a—it's a good read. It's like informative without being preachy. Um, I think like one really interesting point of that book is uh, he opens it up. Uh, he basically describes like his most uh, successful professional moments and like the moments of like greatest achievement. For some reason, are also also correlated with times of either personal or professional turmoil. Mm-hmm. Um, and he draws this correlation throughout the book, like when they opened uh, uh, Disney in Shanghai, which was just a couple years ago, it was the same weekend that there is a shooting in an Orlando nightclub, which was supposed to be, uh, which the, the shooter had originally targeted Disney. Mm. Um, and he just like, he draws this parallel of like, in these moments of high volatility, for whatever reason, both the good and the bad kind of come out together. And so... <laughs> It's kind of inspiring in a way if you think like if you're going through a really tough period personally or professionally, um, if there if it's volatile in nature, there's a good chance something really good can also happen at the same time. Just there's something about when everything is in flux. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity on the table. Totally, and I talked to the team about this even as recently as last night. I, you know, a mentor of mine once said something that stuck with me. He says, "You're either facing the wall or you're facing the road." And if you're facing the wall, you should expect to hit the wall. And there's just like something about like, even in the most shitty turmoil, like that craziness, you, you have to turn and face the road and start putting that one step in front of the other and start to you know move forward because uh, it's very easy to just stay in, in a little bit rough. But uh, for people that are listening in, you know, to hear it coming from you that, you know, you cannot have the great without the bad and they, they are tied together. So keep pushing guys. Joe, this has been an amazing, amazing podcast. I'm really excited that you're here. Uh, where can people find you on the interwebs if they want to connect or you know tweet you or, or whatever? Yeah, definitely. So I mean, I'm on Twitter. Um, I mean, my I think my handle's like Joe underscore Wilson underscore or something like that. Um, so feel free to follow me on Twitter. Um, feel free to email me. I mean, like as I said, if you're interested, especially if you're interested in moving to LA or you have a really interesting company, uh, you can just email me directly at joe at marsbio.vc. Um, I promise I will read your email and maybe I will respond to it like they all respond. <laughs> cool. Uh, from all of us at Coefficient Labs, this is Demo Day. Peace, guys. Next on Demo Day. For people that like are posting on LinkedIn, I would say if you're looking to grow your personal brand and growing more connections and followers, like reposting is great. Posting videos is, is cool, but like provide like real value add content and tell your story because people engage in that. Mm. 